Good morning, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the study through Acts as much as I enjoy it. It's just all action and it's, it's wonderful seeing what God's doing. Today we're in chapter 17 of Acts and we're reading particularly about uh, the occasion when Paul is in Athens. So uh, please follow on the screen in your own Bibles or be happy to listen. Let's read. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, uh, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thanks for that reading, David. Uh, let me add my welcome to Mark's. It's great to be um, back and into the book of Acts as we um, jump into the final term of the year heading towards Christmas. And uh, we 
starting obviously at this passage in Acts 17 today. Before I pray and we look at that together, uh, just one further announcement, and that is, uh, we, we mentioned it last week, this Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m. online, um, we will be having a church meeting, which will be fairly brief, probably only 15 minutes, which is why we're doing it online, to appoint Sam Madavi as our MTS apprentice for next year. He'll hopefully be coming on for a two-year period, um, but we always approve that through a church meeting. So that will be on Zoom. You can get the link to that on our website. So just go again, wollongongbaptist.org, or you might have got it in eNews this week, and there'll be a link there. But you can join us 7.30 p.m. Tuesday night, and we'll be um, talking about Sam. But let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll look at this together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather freely uh, this morning, and we ask that you might again speak to us. Your word is living and active, and we pray that you might help us to hear your voice clearly, that we might see something of Paul's work in his age and how it relates to us today, that you might help us to be clear ambassadors of the gospel uh, that address our culture sensitively and well. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in an optional question in the 2021 census, 43.9% of Australians um, said that they identified with some form or variety of Christian faith. Now, historically, the percentage has been much higher, as we know. It was more than double that in our earliest records. But, of course, the religious landscape in Australia has been changing. In 2021, 38.9% of Australians stated no religion, which is almost 10 million people, and a further 7% chose not to answer the question at all. Now, a lot has been made of the reduction um, over the past uh, couple of decades in particular of those identifying as Christians, uh, but that national average of 44%, of course, varies around our country, and in Wollongong itself, it's over 50%. Um, and But being aware that there are many other factors at play also is helpful. Many other religious beliefs have grown nationally over the last couple of decades. And so each of Hinduism, Buddhism and Islam uh, now have between 2 and 3.5% of the population as adherents. And so we've got this smorgasbord of religious beliefs in Australia today. There's not only Christian churches dotted everywhere, uh, but there's also Islamic mosques and Jewish synagogues and Hindu, Buddhist and Baha'i temples. Of course, we know locally we've got the Taiwanese-based uh, Nantian Buddhist temple here in Wollongong. It's the biggest one in the Southern Hemisphere. And of course, many uh, Australians who register as no religion are still devoted to many New Age beliefs. It's not that there is not a spirituality, it's just that they've shifted to something else that's not what is ticked as a formal religion. And of course, then there are many more people who are just devoted to the worldly gods of real estate and money and other things. You see, everyone is still devoted to something, even if they don't identify with a formal religion. But such a broad spiritual landscape can be very confusing. I think that for many people today... Uh, this plethora of spiritual options actually challenges their mindset that there could be just one truth. And this challenge is often viewed as a new phenomenon. You know, now that we live in a global village and interact with so many different cultures, that this is a new thing. But as we'll see in Acts 17 today, 
Uh, that is not the case. Uh, the unique claims of Jesus have always been put forward against the backdrop of a multi-faith melting pot. Wollongong today and Athens 2,000 years ago have a lot of similarities. The council in Athens was a place that met um, surrounded by stone altars to an endless variety of gods, and Wollongong has its own version of that still. So the question I want us to consider today is this. How should we communicate the gospel in such a culture? How should we communicate the gospel in this multi-faith environment? A few answers that come out from Paul's way of tackling things in Athens. First answer to that question this morning is this. By addressing the current religious landscape. By addressing the current religious landscape. Notice again how he begins in verses 16 to 18 as he starts in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18b, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, by this point in the storyline of Acts, Paul has travelled through Turkey, he's travelled through northern Greece, he's been seeking to explain who God is and how we can know him through his son, the Lord Jesus. But notice that as he comes to the city of Athens, which was a major you know, city centre in the world of that day, he doesn't simply just blurt out the gospel, um, God created you, Jesus died for you, repent and believe. There'd be nothing wrong with that. There's a summary of the gospel in that. But he first of all analyzes the multi-faith melting pot that he has entered into. You notice how it seems like he's taken a tour of the city before he starts speaking to anyone. He analyzes the Greek culture that's um, being displayed there through all their idols, and then he starts teaching. Firstly, to the Jew, and so he goes to the synagogue where he's going to get a ready um, audience as usual, as because he's an expert in the Old Testament as a former Pharisee. They're going to give him an opportunity to explain about the Messiah being Jesus. And so he takes that opportunity. But notice also that he goes into the marketplace. He goes into uh, you know, the, the local square in Athens where lots of orators in that day would present different ideas. And he stands up and he explains the gospel to anyone that's passing by. And we learn that through this, he draws a crowd and gets opportunities to speak about Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? Because despite being distressed by all the idolatry in Athens, Paul manages to share the gospel in what is a very gracious and thoughtful, um, gracious and thoughtful way, but also in a confronting way. He certainly doesn't water down his message. He's able to love the people, to connect with their society that is diametrically opposed to his beliefs, but to uphold the truth of the Lord Jesus. He simply contextualizes his message, his speech, and he draws on aspects of their culture. So notice the key phrase in verse 17, which I think helps us to understand what he's doing, his approach to this. It talks about him reasoning with the people. Now, that key phrase in verse 17, he reasoned with them, means to make a case or to present an argument. He's trying to persuade people through a reasoned explanation that takes in their worldview but then presents the gospel into it. 
Now, eventually, through his speaking in the marketplace, he gets an invitation, of course, to the Areopagus. I guess it would be like one of us being invited to come and speak to Wollongong Council. All the councillors are there, and they'd really like to hear about Jesus. Could you come and tell us? What an opportunity. I mean, he takes it with both hands, and so he goes and speaks to what is the peak body in Athens. But notice the way he approaches it. He starts by using something he's observed as he's walked around the city. They're so worried to offend, perhaps, by not covering all the bases and not noting every god under the sun that they even have an altar to an unknown god. He says, here's my inn. And so he takes that up and says, well, let me tell you about the one you don't know about. He's the most important one. And off he goes and jumps into his talk. And unlike what he's done in Acts 13 as he speaks to Jews or what he would have said even in the synagogue here in Athens, he starts with creation. You can't assume they have any knowledge of the Old Testament because they don't. So he speaks with God as the creator of all things. And then he uses further connection points in their culture in order to persuasively present the good news to them. You notice in verse 28, uh, the opening words there are a quote which was very widespread in Greek culture as their worldview in thinking about God. And it's often traced back to Epimenides. Uh, He was a a Greek philosopher from Crete, about 600 BC. But he has this uh, famous line, in him we live and move and have our being. And so he picks up their philosophy and quotes it back to them. And then you notice he quotes their poet, Aratus, with approval, we are his offspring. By picking that up, he's saying, yeah, you have this pagan expression. It's actually a true biblical idea. We are indeed God's children because he is the creator of everything and everyone. And so what we're reading here is how Paul addressed the gospel message to the religious landscape before him of the day in Athens to make it connect with them so that the audience might hear and understand The truth of the gospel is unchanged, but he's culturally aware. And such a sensitive approach uh, provides for a persuasive explanation to his listeners. Now, it begs the question then, doesn't it? If we were to use this kind of approach in Wollongong today, who are the philosophers, who are the poets, who are the influencers that people listen to, that our non-Christian neighbour or work colleague or family member is taking in. Where are they getting their worldview from? Now, we might think it's the pop stars and the rap artists perhaps that have influence, but I think the bigger influences today are actually the podcast and YouTube celebrities like Joe Rogan. Uh, Joe Rogan, if you haven't heard of him, is the number one podcaster in the United States. He came to fame through commentating on MMA matches where people kill each other. Um, But put that aside, he's now a leading podcaster and um, he has lots of the most famous people in America on his podcast every week. But recently he had this other guy, Oliver Anthony, on his program. Oliver Anthony, if you haven't heard of him, is a Bible-quoting country singer who just had a hit single at the start of August um, that had 46 million views on YouTube by the end of the month. He started being offered all these record contracts, which he rejected, because his song was about the government mistreating the working class in America and people being ruined by the system as he saw it. He hit a nerve and it went viral. And for a video that he recorded in his own backyard, 
without any record contract. It was pretty impressive. And Joe Rogan couldn't ignore him. He was the latest thing. He'd have to have him on his podcast. But I'm not sure he knew quite what he'd get from Oliver Anthony. He does his research. But when Oliver Anthony went on the program, he took his opportunity to share the gospel. He'd only become a Christian a couple of months before his hit song. And he took a Bible with him and he read from Proverbs 4, verses 20 to 27 to Rogan. Joe Rogan is an atheist. Uh, He's had a number of podcasts where he's sort of um, thrown shade on the Bible and said you can't can't trust the Bible, it's not truthful and that. So he's quite known for his outspokenness about religious things. But here was this guy um, quoting the Bible to him. And he picked a passage from the wisdom literature, which is not one that's full of all the thou shalt nots, which I think Joe Rogan tends to react against. And by the end of the reading, he said, wow, that's profound. He was really taken in by what was read to him. And following the reading, Oliver Anthony said this to him, We all sin. We all do stupid things. We're all just people. Nobody's special or righteous. People sometimes act like they're special or righteous, but we're all just the same. We all serve some master, whether we realize it or not. So why not let it be the master that is above all? Now, I'm not suggesting that Oliver Anthony is the new expert in Christian apologetics, but he did some brilliant things in the interview. He'd obviously thought about what he was going to say. He used the Bible, for starters, but a part of the wisdom literature which was more accessible for people and got a hearing. He pointed to his own sin straight away and included himself as everyone else. He didn't speak from some higher point like he had all the answers. He put himself in the same boat. He acknowledged, though, the idolatry of the day, that everybody serves something, and it would be far better if we served the true master. Like his song, he'd worked out a way to connect with the audience. He knew millions of people would be watching Joe Rogan's podcast, and he took his opportunity well. There's some really helpful principles in what he did. Whether he had some help from somebody or he's just clever in that way, but there's some helpful things we can learn about how to connect with people, how to make them curious in a post-Christian world that is used to dismissing the Christian faith. It bears thinking about as we have conversations with our family and friends, how we might do that in a way that will resonate with them and perhaps get under their guard. And that brings me to a second answer of how we should communicate the gospel. Secondly, we should not only understand the spiritual landscape as we speak, but we should explain that Christ is the risen judge of all, which is where Paul goes at the end of his speech. We need to explain that Christ is the risen judge of all. So notice again the climax of Paul's speech to the Areopagus, verse 29 to 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. These are the key verses for the whole passage. This is uh, Paul's punchline, if you like. And his speech builds up to this challenging point. And I want to unpack these three verses in reverse order. 
starting with verse 31. Notice that his punchline in the final bit in verse 31 is the challenging idea that Christ is the judge of every person and that his resurrection from the dead is the proof that God the Father has appointed him as the one to whom our lives are accountable. Notice that Paul doesn't focus on the death of Jesus, but rather on the resurrection. There's not a focus on the theme of the atoning sacrifice and payment of sin, although he'll do that elsewhere. But in this particular instance, he focuses on the resurrection and as Jesus being the risen judge. But why is the resurrection the proof of Christ's authority to judge every person on the planet? Well, the inference here in Paul's argument is his resurrection demonstrates that he is the Lord of life, that he has conquered death, the great enemy of all humanity, and therefore he is Lord over all people, the very thing that we cannot defeat, that we don't have control of, he does. And so not only does his resurrection prove that his death over, was over, um, that his payment of sin through his death was effective and paid for our debt, which is usually what we focus on in the resurrection, but it also declares that he is the ruler, that he is the Lord of life, the one to whom we must give an account. And if we're to present that truth in our culture today, we might want to add this, and what could be fairer? You see, the one who laid down his life for you to pay for your rebellion, your rejection of God's rightful rule over you, is the one who will be your judge. He is the one who determines whether you have believed in him and received his offer of forgiveness and had your sins erased, or whether you have rejected him and face him unforgiven with your debt exposed. What could be fairer? The one who did everything to save you is the one who will decide whether you have responded to him. And notice that although Paul analyzes and connects his presentation to the religious landscape, although he begins with creation, he still challenges their idolatry. He still challenges their worldview. He calls them to repent of their idol worship in verse 30. If those things are true and Jesus is Lord of life, then you better repent and turn to him, verse 30. You need to give up your wrong thinking, your false worship. You need to turn to the one who has declared as your judge, the one who has been raised from the dead. God loves us and he calls us to return to him. And the reason that he loves us, verse 29, continuing to move backwards, is that God desires to be in a personal relationship with us. This springs from his love for us. He designed us to relate to him. He is our heavenly father, our creator. And as a result, he wants to be in relationship with his offspring, his people, his creation, and we should desire to be in relationship with him. It's using a, a parenting analogy really there, isn't it? It's amazing becoming a parent. Uh, I became a father for the first time in January of 2003 when our eldest was born, and I've had the privilege of seeing that twice more. And Christine and I have been blessed with three lovely children for whom we're very thankful to God. And it probably goes without saying that I really desire to have a good relationship with them. I'm their father. I, I long to have a strong relationship with my children. It's a wonderful gift. And Paul's point here is that God is our heavenly father, our creator, and it's natural 
that he desires to relate to us. And we should desire to be in relationship with him. But so often we reject our created God. We don't want to have anything to do with the one who gave us life. I know a woman who decided uh, that she was not going to have any involvement with her mother for a couple of years. She was an only child. Her mother had poured her life into her daughter and they had been very close. The daughter walked away from the relationship. She got married without telling her mother, with no one present, just a couple of witnesses, and then told her mother a few weeks later, oh, by the way, I'm married. And it was devastating. Her mother was heartbroken that she missed one of the most important events in her daughter's life. Her mother found this severing of relationship unsatisfactory, to say the least. See, we're, we're meant for relationship with our parents, right? They brought us into this world. We're meant for relationship with our Heavenly Father who gave every single one of us life. And yet our world so often ignores God, it just plain rejects him. But that void is filled. That void does not remain empty. We were wired for relationship, for worship of something. We all have a master. And so we fill that void with a God-shaped alternative. We attend the temple of sport or the temple of real estate or the temple of career or the temple of life experiences and world travel or whatever it might be. We devote ourselves to someone or something in God's place. But God isn't just, you know, the parent who we might think we can ignore. Although he's loving and offers us a fresh start through his son, he's also just. And will be brought to account if we continue to ignore him. He's patient, but he will not tolerate our rejection forever. And so we're called, we're called to receive Jesus as our saviour rather than to face Jesus as our judge. And that brings me to a third and final point as we think about communicating the gospel today in our culture. Thirdly, we need to expect a range of responses. Finally, we need to expect a range of responses. Have a look at how the passage ends in verses 32 to 34 again. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Notice the, the varied reactions here to the gospel presentation by Paul. This is a strong statement in a multi-faith environment, and there are three obvious reactions. There are those who sneered, who rejected the gospel outright, there are those who want to hear more, who have questions, and then there are those who respond with faith in Jesus. But as the Apostle Paul knew through experience over and over and over again, and as he wrote in some of his letters, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 famously, this is to be expected. Paul wrote there, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we're an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And so perhaps you're a Christian here today who shared the gospel with a non-Christian 
family member or work colleague or friend or whatever it might be, and you've been sneered at (laughs) because of your faith. They've just outright rejected you. Then you will know how it feels to get that initial response that Paul got from some of the people. The Bible tells it as it is. It never sugarcoats it. Many people will reject the gospel, and that's whether you're sharing it or whether it's the Apostle Paul. So don't be disappointed. (laughs) Even the greatest apologist and church planter ever in Paul got the same reactions. But, of course, it can be very deflating, can't it? We're not... We don't enjoy those moments. It can be really hard. But we're not to give up sharing. We're not to give up praying for people. Because some will have the second reaction. You know, they want to hear more. They're ready to think about it. This is how many people come to faith, isn't it? Uh, For our non-Christian family members, friends at work or at school, university, sporting teams, wherever it might be, there may well be lots of questions before they're going to reach a point of faith in the Lord Jesus. They may have come from a completely different religious belief altogether. So there'll be a whole lot of things to unpack there before they'll reach an understanding of the claims of Jesus on their life. They may simply be devoted to the materialism of our age. And even there, there's a whole lot of obstacles and wrong thinking to undo, to understand that a devotion to chasing things on this earth won't lead it to anywhere. But we have to realize that people have questions and so we want to answer those questions we want to engage with them and that can be an ongoing and long process that's why we run christianity explored courses we'd love you if if you find yourself this morning sitting in that middle position where you're open you're interested but you still got lots of questions you haven't quite committed to following jesus yet we'd love to answer those questions we'd love you to be part of a christianity explored course we're about to start one in the next week where sam madavi our Our soon-to-be MTS apprentice will be uh, running one. Uh, We'd love you to be part of that. Come and talk to me afterwards. But there's also the wonderful joy, isn't there, of the third response, of people who come to faith, sometimes quickly, like Damaris and Dionysius, who are open and ready and who just hear the gospel and smell the fragrance of life. But as we apply this further to our setting today, um, it should be a reminder that becoming a disciple of Jesus starts with a moment of faith in the risen Christ. But that can be a long time coming, that first moment. And so we need to, above all, be prayerful. We need to keep committing our friends and family to prayer. And we need to keep sharing our story. We live in a post-truth, post-Christian world which so often doesn't want to hear any truths or propositions about Jesus. God's the creator. You've rejected the creator. You'll be judged for that. But God has sent the solution in Jesus. Trust in him. And I've just given you a two ways to live. There's nothing wrong with that gospel outline. But sometimes people are like, I don't want to hear all of that. I'm not, not interested in the Christian truth. You can't tell me those things. I reject all those things. But what they can't easily reject is your personal story. As you share your testimony, how God has changed your life, they can't say that's not true. <laughs> they've, they've either got to reject you as a person or they've got to listen to your story and say, wow, okay, God's done those amazing things in your life. I reject all this stuff about the, the truths that Christianity presents, but maybe I'll have to reconsider it because of what you're saying about the change that's happened in you. You see the power of a, ter- a personal testimony in that regard in our culture today. Use those opportunities. You don't know how a person might be listening and considering 
Every interaction we may have uh, could be the first or the final step towards Jesus for someone. As we, God uses our flawed efforts to draw men and women to himself. But of course, remember that it's God's work ultimately. No matter how well we present the gospel, no matter how cluey we are in terms of our culture and sensitive in speaking into the religious landscape, ultimately it's only God who will convict a person and open their blind eyes and their closed mind to the truth of the good news about Jesus. It's God's work through the Holy Spirit to convict and change. And so we need to keep praying above all. Yes, we need to play our part, to think well, to speak as sensitively and helpfully as we can. We need to keep praying that God will be at work. And how often has it been the case in your life that you've heard of somebody that perhaps you've even shared with yourself or a story of somebody you knew who became a Christian years after people had been sharing with them and maybe they never shared with the original people that had been speaking to them about Jesus over and over again. And I have a friend who has been in ministry now for 10 or 15 years And he came to faith in a Bible study I was leading 23 years ago. Now, I don't say that to brag. I say that to make the point that it was about other people's prayer and it was completely in the face of my ignorance. I thought this young guy was actually a believer. He was coming along with his Christian friends. A couple of them were a bit uncertain about where he stood. And they were praying for him all throughout that year. And God was at work in the background. I had no idea what was happening. I moved on to another church the following year. About six months later, he said, oh, can we catch up for a coffee? I said, yeah, let's catch up. And he shares over coffee that he'd become a believer in the Bible study. I was like, that is wonderful news. Why didn't you say anything to somebody? It was just so good to hear. But we just don't know what God is doing. As people pray, as they're observing your life, be ready. People are listening and watching. Live faithfully as Christ's follower. Never underestimate what God is doing. And look, we're 10 weeks away from Christmas. I hope that doesn't ring alarm bells for you. Maybe you're one of those persons that bought all your presents in February, so it's all done and dusted, so good on you. Um, But if you're like the rest of us, it's coming up quickly and there's lots to think about. But Christmas is a wonderful time because often people in our culture are more open to chatting about Christian things. They know about this Christmas thing that Christians (laughs) are focused on. They see little bits of it here and there in the news. They're often more relaxed because there's holidays coming up. They're open to a conversation. And if you've been having a conversation with a non-Christian friend, there's going to be lots of opportunities in this next 10 weeks to invite them to something at church if they're at that point in your conversation. We're going to have men's and women's evangelistic events. There'll be a carol service. There'll be Christmas services. Be thinking and praying now, not only how you can have that next conversation with your friend, but whether they're at the point where you could bring them along. Come with them, sit next to them, share with them in the event and then follow up in the aftermath of what they thought, of what they heard about the good news. I think the key attitude for Christians that we all need to have is to be ready to start a dialogue in the marketplace that is Australian society today, just like Paul did in Athens 2,000 years ago. We may live in a global village now. There may be an awareness of so many different beliefs but this melting pot of multi-faith environment, it's not a new phenomenon. And so we can learn from the Apostle Paul. We've seen today that as we think about how we can communicate the gospel, that we need to address the current religious landscape. We need to present Jesus as the risen judge who desires people to turn back to him. And we need to realize that as we do so, there'll be a mix of reactions. And that's okay. 
and to be ready for those that have questions and want follow-up to continue to walk with them on that journey till God brings them to that point where they place their trust in the Lord Jesus like you have too. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace shown to us in the giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we might be able to learn from the Apostle Paul. Help us to be those who are aware of the culture around us, but hold to the gospel to present it unchanged into what often seems to us an ever-changing environment surrounding us. Lord, help us to be ready to be your witnesses, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.